The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. I have what I call a hairbrain idea. It started off by saying, let's build a niche music streaming service. A bunch of people told me I was mad, and a whole bunch of others said, no, that's a great idea. Next thing I knew, we'd raised 250,000 US in five days. It just blew up. This is not for sissies, you know? Your friends and family are gonna think you're mad. You're gonna wonder most days why you're doing this. You're gonna have to learn to deal with rejection a lot. It's tough, but I think that if that's your calling and you're willing to take on those highs and those lows, and you're willing to admit to that it's hard, and tell more startups out there that it's hard but worth it, that hopefully more of them will create their own futures and stop relying on systems that are crumbling. This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. Do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that will be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super-targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audiences, through this podcast. We would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. My guest today is Catherine Lockoff. She's the founder of Niche Stream, a platform that makes it easier for others to build their own niche music streaming services. She described it as WordPress for music and audio streaming. I first met Catherine in London in 2015 when she was raising the seed round for a startup. Then I was an investor at Potential VC. She struck me as an hardworking visionary founder, the type who will be successful whether you invest in them or not. Since then, we've been friends and have been inspired by tenacity and determination to build a great company out of Africa. Catherine has served on the board of the Silicon Cape Initiative, was named as one of male and guardians 200 young South Africans, and was recognized in the top group top women in business and government. This is not Catherine's false rodeo in running a company. She successfully exited a previous business to start this one. So Catherine, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you. I remember we, when we first met, I think it was in central London uh, mm-hmm. when you, that was about two years ago when you were just about raising money and myself and two of my partners at Potential VC and you were at a coffee shop upstairs and then we were downstairs waiting for you and then we met you and she was, it, was, it was a great meeting hearing about what you're doing at Niche Stream and it was quite fascinating, your understanding of the market and not just the market, but the product. So there are three things that we used to look for uh, when I was in VC. We look for the, the, the founder, the team, the market, and the product. And you seem to tick all, all those boxes. So apparently, the secret is that you are a serial entrepreneur. Apparently, apparently. yes. <laughs> so let's go back to how you started. So what was the first company that you founded? Was it while you were in the university or just immediately after? It was, in fact, while I was at university. So I had no idea what I wanted to study when I left school. I was accepted for a BCom law at Stellenbosch University and took one look at this and went, mm-mm. <laughs> and you were supposed to do b- b- Bachelor's of Economics and Law. Exactly. And I left Cape Town while I was living in Stellenbosch at the time, but I left South Africa and took a gap year instead, much to my parents' dismay. And I came back from that, I think, having a much better understanding of the world. And I actually advocate that everyone should take a gap year after school because I don't think any students really know what they want to do. What did you do during your gap year? Everything. I did care work. I looked after a 92-year-old stroke victim. I 
you know, from start to finish, took care of her. I worked in a golf course in America. I spent some time visiting my mother. I went, uh, I traveled to Turkey. I did a number of things. I just wanted to take time out and better understand who I was. And I came back and did a late entry for the Cape Technicon here, which is uh, the Peninsula, Cape Peninsula University of Technology. And I wanted to study something along the lines of communication. But at the time, this is 2000, 2001, you could either do journalism or you could do HR. There wasn't really a degree in communication available at universities as, as one would, you know, think of them. So we had to go to a Technicon and I did a late entry and got in. And three years later, I started my first business. And that was purely as a result of the fact that the Cape Technicon insists on a uh, internship. So after in my third year, I did an 11 month internship where once a week you'd go to class and you still had to submit projects and things like that. And by the end of that year, I was managing a couple of accounts on behalf of this ad slash PR agency in Center Group Agency. So you were working in an, as an intern in a media company. Correct. So they did advertising, digital, public relations, etc. And during your internship, you are now managing accounts on their behalf. Yes. Small accounts and then also assisting on much bigger accounts. We, for example, worked on finance accounts. We did a renaming ceremony for Sea Harvest for one of their boats. I worked on a golf course, um, taking, it was a Jack Nicholson golf course that needed to be launched and we did press for it and the whole thing. Um, and also Woolworths, Woolworths Financial Services as well as Woolworths itself was my client. And so when I left, they offered me a very shocking salary as a starting point. And I said, no, I'm good. I'll keep studying. And I ended up going in for my fourth year. And in that fourth year, all its financial services approached me and said, we really miss you. Could you quote us? And so I checked my contracts and there were no restraints of trade. And oh, so you left that company after your internship. They wanted to make you stay, but you said, okay, I'm going to go and study. And then while you were studying after your studies, one of the accountants, your manager said, Catherine, can you work with us directly? That's correct. So that was during my fourth year and I ended up quoting and getting the job. And the next thing I knew, I ended up signing up three clients and I was finishing off my fourth year and I'd borrowed some money from my dad to buy a camera and a printer and paid him off in the first two months. And that was the start of Manga OMC, which was Manga Open-Minded Communication. So you, you stumbled, would you say that you stumbled into entrepreneurship or you were pulled by opportunities? I think a little of both. I think the one thing I truly missed out on was the internship year I enjoyed because you got to learn from people. When you suddenly start working for yourself, you have to figure it out all by yourself. And I think the one thing I had going for me is I wasn't afraid to say that I have no idea, but I'll get back to you. And so I stumbled into it, taking on these clients and just having a lot of chutzpah and thinking, well, I can do this and doing it. And my client base grew just through word of mouth. And by the end of the fourth year, I was supporting myself. And seven years later, I ended up selling that business. But we had a lot of fun at the time, moving into 2006, 2007, when blogging was now big and Facebook was starting we were the first agencies to really start embracing through the line campaigns and doing digital campaigns and working with Red Bull and Red Bull Mobile and DSTV Online and a lot of entertainment, music, digital clients, and then also a lot of feel-good clients. I've always felt that you should affect and effect change where you can. And uh, yeah, seven years later, I was like, okay, I'm new beginning. Let's see what okay. what's next. <laughs> Before we go for that seven years later, let's mm. just deep dive into how you grew that business. So... Initially, it was a client that called you and said, hey, you managed X, X amount for us before. Can you do this? And then you borrowed some money from your dad and you started it. And talk me through how you then grew that from one client to 10 or 15 and then how you hired people to say, okay, I'm now an agency and I'm managing clients. And oh, were you the only one that was doing this for, for the seven years? No, no, no. We grew to two offices and 20 staff members and... And that was you hiring people and you were the founder and the CEO hiring 20 people. Yeah. So halfway through, I took on a business partner who could do everything I hated amongst things, you know, admin, people management, HR, that kind of stuff. I'm definitely more on the creative strategy, business development side than I am on sick leave. I'm not very good with sick leave. Um Meaning I just, you know, I get involved in where does the business go next, but it's really important when a business grows to a certain point to have someone who really is integrally involved in the, the operational side of things and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. So Nicole joined me and between the two of us, she had a complement of clients and I'd already had five or six clients on my books. 
And from there, we put a team together. So I already had someone working with me. And as we would acquire new clients, we'd hire new account managers and account directors to assist us with that. And that's the one beautiful thing about a services business. You only, you know, you basically take on the workforce that you need and you do that off the back of signed contracts. And it's a much simpler model and certainly doesn't require as much capital. Yes, Um, because you're selling your brain. Exactly. And then you're profitable from day one if you do it well. And so you grew that. And I assume that as you're growing, the number of uh, clients and the number of staff you have is an indication of how successful it is, right? So uh, can you give an indication of how, in terms of revenue that you grew to in the last seven years before you sold it? Sure. By the time I left, we were making a fairly tidy profit, which was nice. But certainly wasn't. I wasn't leaving because... The company wasn't doing well. I was leaving because if you've ever been in PR and communications, it's fairly step and repeat to a large extent. I was interested in, in so it's not challenging enough things. for you. I guess not. Yeah. So, so you were making like quarter of a million dollars revenue, or yeah, we were probably doing between five and eight million rand in revenue, which is. So divide by 14, that's what, four, five hundred thousand. Okay, so you're doing, we're doing pretty well. So you could actually retire on that. If you wanted if to, you I wanted was very to. young. Yeah, but I was you 28. Could, <laughs> but you, you, could, you could live on that for a long time and become like, a, and be successful. But you have an itch. You say, okay, this is not challenging enough. Why don't you just let it keep going and then use the money from that to start something else? Why do you have to sell it? There were two, couple of reasons. Truth be told, I needed to become a lot more involved in growing the business. And the business was also very reliant on the two principal people being myself and Nicole. So you can ride on brand value only that much. And, but I was really bringing in most of the business with the, the team behind me, making sure that the engine was working. And so I wasn't really prepared to be in that role anymore. And they needed to find someone else who would step in and do that. And it was time for me to explore new things. Services businesses require you to be really integrally involved. And I wanted to learn more and do more and see more. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't a time of, um, uh, what, what year was this? That was 2012. Okay. So yeah. I would assume that technology, because now there's a way that people are building a service business in a way mm-hmm. that technology is enabling a lot of it and changing the model that is less dependence on a primary person. But I get you, it, it's true. If, if you're locked in a service business, it's almost like having a corner shop and you're just locking it for, for, for life if you're not careful. And if, especially if it's not something that you enjoy, if you just stumbled into it, like entrepreneurially, like you, uh, then it could become a drain even though you're making the money. So we either had to turn into a really big agency or keep running a boutique as we were doing. And I think I've mentioned before, when it comes to the the deep operational side of things, I don't know, maybe that's what makes me an entrepreneur. I see an idea and I want to take it further and I want to grow it to a point and I want to hand it over to people who are really good at it. And Mango OMC is still running. They're still doing really well. So, so you sold it to a company that can run it? I sold it to my business partner. Oh, you sold it to your... So you exited a business. Yeah. So you took money out of the, out of the table. So, okay, I'm going, I want to leave this. And then your partners started running it. Exactly. Okay, cool. I was thinking that you sold it to another company because the reason why I was asking that is... Um, I know South Africa is quite different. We're here in Cape Town, which is a beautiful, beautiful place, by the way. So I'm glad you so, like so, it. <laughs> I really like it. It's just amazing. I've just been a few hours here. I'm falling in love with the city already. I, I think there might be um, a lot of um, history of people buying businesses in, Cape, in, in mm-hmm. South Africa that is not there in most sub-Saharan African country where people sell their business because they want to move on. And so... I initially thought that you sold your business to someone else, Estana, but is that an option on the table where if you and your partner wanted to leave, you could sell the business to another agency? We did actually have an agency who was interested uh, in buying out my share of the business, especially an ad agency that was far more traditional, was looking for a communications and digital arm to join them. Um, an award-winning agency today, actually, so I think it would have been a good move. But my partner had first right and she decided that she wanted to buy me out and continue and that was her choice, and I respected it. Yeah, so she continued that. So just good to know that there are exit options for small businesses mm-hmm. in South Africa. I know they exist in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, and other countries as well, but not as much as mm-hmm. I think it should have been in the UK or South Africa, where you're running a business, and 
you don't want to run it anymore. You want to move on to something new and there are exit options available for you to say, yeah. okay, I want to sell this business. I want to move on. And you still get your money. I think the tricky thing with a services business, especially one that's operating in the communication space, is so much of that business rides on the relationships you've built up with media and with uh, clients, etc. If you leave, you're inevitably taking the you know, life and capital, soul of the human capital out of that business. Yes. And... It's not like a product that stands by itself and can fend for itself if it has a good brand name and a, and a solid team behind it. So that, I think, has been one of the more interesting things I've learned moving mm. into more the product platform space than and getting out of the services business space. So let's talk about you moving now from that mm. business. Did you move after Mango? Did you... Is that when you started Niche or you did something else? No, I did something else. So um, a very good friend of mine, Emma Kay... At the time, I had raised funding for a company called Boza, which was a mobile app. They were building a platform for artists, musicians, filmmakers, etc., to self-publish and, and be discovered. It's really before the advent of YouTube and data becoming as cheap as it was. So YouTube in Africa, I should say. And the idea was to discover new talent, people who couldn't break through that ceiling. And you'll often have artists who, for example, in the townships will have a huge following, but they can't break out of that and become more mainstream. And so I was involved with Boza for two years. It was funded by Hassa Platner, uh, Google Ventures, and Omidyar. Uh, it was the first investment Omidyar did in Africa. Were in you South Africa. a found, co-founder or you're just one of the early stage, I mean, early employees? I was number job. four or You're five. number four. So you're one of the early employees, which is well, as critical mm-hmm. as the founders. Yeah. And so that's really where I cut my teeth, learning how to deal with product managers and developers and you know, how cantankerous developers can be. So that was quite a learning a learning curve for me. But after two years, Boza uh, was still going through funding rounds. They hadn't quite launched a product yet. My responsibility was dealing with the operators in Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, um, looking at brands who would potentially want to sponsor new talent and, and use them as a, a segue into new markets that they could grow. And so I uh, gave them notice and did a three-month handover and decided to take two, two to three months off. And Why? What happened? Why did you stop that? I was finding it very difficult not being able to deliver a product to the end user. At the end of the day, Bozo was really struggling with what its business model was going to be. And we had an enormous amount of content. We had a great team. But every time I was told we're ready to go, I'd you know, sign up a deal with someone and then I'd have to pull out of that. And I'm not very good at reneging on promises. I'd like to see that come to fruition. Sadly, Bozo is no more. Oh, interesting. So, so Boza is dead as a company. As far as I know, they don't have any employees anymore. Right. So it was one of those amazing, in principle and in idea and in execution early stage, was phenomenal. What but was the main business idea behind it? was to aggregate content from musicians and filmmakers and poets, spoken word, etc., and for users to discover new African content and content from all over the continent. And what was the business model? The idea was to fund it through brands and agencies and telcos that were looking for content, um, but they were also looking for artists that they could sponsor, like an Adidas who would want to sponsor a new artist, in the same way that MTN, I guess, was the, the driving force behind someone like Iceprint. And yeah, it was, I think at one point we had four different business models, which luckily wasn't my sole responsibility, but yeah, it needed to land on something and it was tricky. It's a tricky business model to fund. Mm. So was that some of the inspiration behind what you're doing now? Because I'm trying to look at the link between you running an, uh, a PR agency to running a music streaming uh, <laughs> platform. Yeah. So was Boza the link between those two? So actually, my ex-husband, who I love dearly and we get on like a house on fire, was a musician. And when I was running uh, Mango OMC, we actually took on quite a number of music clients, Rocking the Daisies being a local rock music festival here, that we pulled Red Bull and Levi's and a bunch of brands into. It was fantastic. And then moving into Boza, looking at the self-publishing side and how much content is available. But then through that, I also had an opportunity to speak at conferences like Midem. And there, having met a lot of people who were interested in doing work in Africa, but weren't entirely sure how to move into the space. And I was curious to know what the bigger services were going to do for Africa, because I, I believe that, and I hate kind of Africa as this collective noun, but for me, the way that music works here and the way that content works here is very different to homogenous 
societies like the US, for example, even there you have segmentation. You know, you have people who love gospel and you have people who love uh, country music, for example. But what I find here is you can move just from Cape Town to Johannesburg and the taste in music is different. How people engage with music is different. So if you're going to give a homogenous offering, how do you speak to each of these communities and how do you speak to people's identity and their culture and the nuances around that. And I just figured that you couldn't expect a westernized product to just land here and work. And I think that that's what a lot of these guys are facing now. If you look at what Jukes is doing with local content, they've got a big local content focus. Um, similarly, Apple Music is driving after quite a lot of the Afrikaans content market here in South Africa. Spotify is on the way. It will be interesting to see what they do. But I think that people listen to the music they love repeatedly. So if you are a Nigerian gospel fan and you go onto Spotify and it's five layers deep and it's all been thrown into one playlist because it happens to be, you know, Christian related. That doesn't really speak to your need for you might be into pop gospel or you might be into praise and worship or you might be into whatever. And I just felt that there must be a better way to deliver content here on this continent. And deep dive into the niches. Exactly. Because one could argue that Spotify is already capturing most of those music anyways. Like, one can argue, okay, Google is huge. You can search on information on Google, but do we need another Google for Africans or do we need a niche Google? And it's just, if Spotify is big and tidal and all that stuff and they can aggregate all the music inevitably or the labels we want to publish to them. So what is the main need and drive for a niche music platform like NicheStream? So NicheStream's first product is called Liki. Um, it's an Afrikaans music stream. Afrikaans music makes up 58% of domestic music sales. But if you've never been in, in, South, Africa. in South Africa... 58% of the domestic music sales. What do you mean by domestic music sales? So CDs, tickets, any music that's sold within the borders of the country and revenue that's driven through. Is it because there are more African speakers in, or is it that African speakers proportionally is listen to more music or buy more music than other groups? Probably buy more music. Okay. You'll also see that on DSTV, their most profitable channels are Afrikaans channels. It's a very affluent, connected, culturally adhesive, if you like, community um, who have a long history. And the market around it is a lot more formalized. So artists have had opportunities to tap into labels and a number of other things. And so we just I just felt that if you were offering something that was a lot cheaper, that gave artists front and center stage. You know, if you are an Afrikaans artist who happens to be the biggest Afrikaans artist in the country, when your content lands on Google, you have to compete with Adele and U2 and whoever else is the Taylor Swift who at the time then pulled her content, but that's another discussion. And I just felt that if you could do three things, one, you could make the stream cheaper. You could localize it from a playlisting perspective. So suddenly you land there in their playlists that are culturally sensitive and, you know, make sense to you. So South Africa has a big braai community or braai culture. You know, here we had braai playlists and rugby playlists and you name it. It was all very much geared towards that specific community. And then secondly, if you could help those artists only compete with themselves, in other words, within their own pool of artists, they could suddenly move the needle of the market share that they own on that streaming service and therefore potentially earn more. So in the same way that you now see the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world offering mainstream video services, you now also see a lot of niche video services coming out for purely gay content or gospel content, etc., uh, documentaries only and so forth. So there are niche video streaming platforms like that. Very much so. So I have Netflix, right? And I pay monthly for Netflix. And I love documentary. Most of the stuff I watch on Netflix are documentary and some of the big series. But documentary is one of the key things I look for. Maybe if I see a very good documentary streaming platform and my subscriber, I would be thinking, why would I do that? Because I've got some of the documentaries I needed on Netflix. So I was wondering how big this market could be in the sense of, if I'm an African, I guess, though, because the depth of, so I'm just trying to argue myself out of the position I was taking before, the depth of the African music that would be on whichever one, the other one, Spotify, mm. might not be as rich and as diverse in that niche as much as I want and might not understand the nuances of this particular strand of music is different from this one. So, so I guess maybe that, that might be, but, I, but the question is, how big is that market? Afrikaans market for us was a great test bed. It's a market we knew and understood. Um, a lot of my clients at Mango had been Afrikaans. I am Afrikaans home speaking. Well, my mom's English, my dad's Afrikaans. But if you look at Nigerian gospel music, if you look at Persian music, 
If you look at what Angami is doing in the Middle East with, you know, Arabic music, and if you look at what Dukes is doing in China, and I stand to be corrected, I'll double check these stats for you, but three or four percent of the Dukes catalog in China is Chinese, but more than 80% of people listen to just that two or three percent. And um, Savin in India has the same thing. So they start off with offering you a lot of local Hindi, Bollywood, etc. content, but you can dig deeper to more. And I think the thing is in the same way that TV channels differentiate. If you're into the History Channel, you go to the History Channel and you know, Food Channel or Food Network. I don't actually own a TV, so but I know of them. And so our premise to start off with was: Can you capitalize on the niches that are out there? Make it cheaper for the end user. Make it, you know, a, a smaller catalog, but that's more deeply segmented in terms of playlisting and what it offers to the user. And we certainly did that with Liki here. So we had over twenty thousand app downloads, fifteen thousand plus registrations. Um, people were listening to eighty-six minutes a day. Eighty-six minutes a day on mm-hmm. average. What we found, and that's something that I guess we could have predicted but thought we would be able to break through, was that users here in this market are still very loath to pay with credit cards. So we were setting up a deal with Telcom to actually do a distribution deal to hard bundle and so forth. Hang on. Let's just pause there about what you just said, mm. which is a bit of a diversion. Users in South Africa are still weary and reluctant to pay via credit card, even though credit card has been used here for several years before most sub-Saharan African countries. Correct. Why is that? Your guess is as good as mine. So subscriptions, I think that this market was really burnt by recurring subscriptions, especially in the early days with the telco operators saying, oh, it's five rand a week and you couldn't unsubscribe and suddenly you had bills that were going through the roof. Right. So subscriptions freaked them out, unless it's paper subscriptions and, you know, the newspapers being delivered every day. But you're seeing with the likes of the Media24 group, you know, everyone's investing an enormous amount of money to get users in and to keep them there. So your pockets have to be exceptionally deep to do the education on what's the value that you're offering, why come back, why this versus physical. And what we're finding is so many people were saying, can we pay with EFT or can we pay, you know, using our cell phone contracts or can we buy a voucher up front, et cetera. And so at the end of the day, I think it's in part because it's still a very nascent market. You know, people understand a physical CD. They're willing to spend a hundred rand, so approximately $10, $8 on a physical CD for 10 to 15 tracks. But you explain to them they can get 40,000 tracks for $4. They're just, they're not quite there yet. Like, and you need a lot of education. And so for us, the B2C market is interesting. But what is more interesting is working with telcos and with um, institutions that already own a lot of content, like the Smithsonian Institute in the US and saying to them, you know what? We're exceptional at platform. We can, we've built the entire platform on the back end. We can build a streaming service on your behalf. And effectively say, you don't have to have any of the technical expertise. You don't have to do any of the hosting. You don't have to spend 18 months building it and a million dollars. We'll just be WordPress for streaming. So we're moving into a space where we're a platform as a service play. We've already actually scoped a white label for a Persian music stream. Uh, we're in talks with a telco operator. And then, as I mentioned, Smithsonian is someone that we started initial conversations with. I need to get back to the US for that. But people who own content, telco operators who want to own that entire data stream from the user that they can already reach through distribution to the data component of it to, you know, the upsell on the ARPU side. And that for us now is saying instead of us spending an enormous amount of money doing the label agreements and doing the marketing and doing the education around why this is so much better value, let the Spotify's and the Google's and the Apple Music's of the world do that and then move into markets where that's already commonly understood, like markets that already have Deezer and a number of others. So how does that work? So we let's talk about your B2B market. Mm. So you are live streaming music platform as a service for businesses, I guess, they needed that kind of content. So they've come to realization that we this content is good for our users and we want to do it ourselves. Well, instead of doing it themselves, they can come to you and you provide that. But I'm thinking about... How does the licensing work? So let's say I'm Smithsonian Institute and then that's uh, Telco. Are they going to use the same content? No. So in the case of Smithsonian, they already own their own content. In the case of the, the Telcos, they either already have licenses or will do the licensing on their behalf. Um, so what do you do for that? Is your platform just aggregating this content? So in the same way that we licensed all the content from Sony, Universal, Orchard, etc. for Licky. It just depends on what those requirements are. And there's so much content out there, right? It might be that we work with, and this is a big dream of mine, but two big dreams, actually. I really think there's scope for a Nigerian gospel stream. 
I sincerely think we can work I, I with the churches. You, you, said, you, you mentioned that was the only first thing that you mentioned when we met two yeah. years ago. And we, you say that you're working on Nike now, uh, which is Africans, but you also want to do uh, Nigerian gospel. And I saw that's a huge market. Huge. Huge, not just in Nigeria, but outside Nigeria as well. And it's just massive. So let's deep dive into the business model. How does it work? So I understand a bit of Spotify. They buy the license from the musician. They put it on their platform and the musicians get paid based on the amount of people that listen to the music. So do revenue share with the musician, yeah. right? So, so or with the label that put the music there. So, so 70, 30, I don't know, whatever. It's revenue share. So if I am... Whatever I'm, a, I'm a musician and I've just released the music and I put it there and I put it through my label and someone listens for one thousand times, I get paid a particular amount. Is that how yep. your model works? Kind of. So in general, how streaming works is that streaming companies have agreements with labels and content owners. Let's call them that because they're also private owners and so forth. And generally, they pay a percentage of the content revenue pool. So. Let's say your streaming service is $10 a month and you have an agreement where 70% of that goes into the content revenue pool, $7 will go into that pool. If in that month, Sony artists or Orchard artists or whomever have 50% of the plays on the platform, they take 50% of $7. So you don't get paid per track. You You get get paid paid, a percentage of the pool versus how big your percentage of that pool is. Yes, yes. I think I once read that model. And I find it very interesting, actually, that, yes, that is the percentage of the pool based on how many leases you have in proportion to everybody if you don't get enough lease in a particular month, then you get lower. Exactly. Which sucks for a label because you, you don't have repeatability. It actually sucks for the streaming service because 70% of their revenue goes straight out the door. But that's not, does it? Oh, why? Because they are not the one that is producing the content. It's a bit like Amazon selling stuff on behalf of the seller and, and they, because have, they have to give 70% of that to the seller. Of every, well, you have a platform to run, you have hosting, you have all the security around it, you have the reporting back to the labels. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have 30% left of a monthly subscription fee to run your entire business on marketing, platform, staff, operations, the whole bank shoot. So are you saying that the cost of running that is fundamentally different and more than that of Amazon, which sells physical goods and still take only 30%. I can't speak to the physical goods market, but what I know is if you look at every streaming service out there, they're losing money hand over fist. They're losing money. Because I felt that they've got more reliable revenue model compared to the labels. Because you know, if I have a thousand people subscribe to this service and they're paying um, $10 each, so I've got $3,000 every month, whatever happens, whether five people listen to a particular song or less, I get... There's a per minimum subscriber fee. So every label says that per subscriber, they take this minimum fee and everything over and above that that comes from the content revenue pool. Right. Okay. So... I'm just looking at it from the perspective of the label. So the label, they cannot determine, they don't know how many people actually listen to their stuff month by month. They can project and say, okay, based on the historical data, but they cannot. But with the, with the streaming service, they know how many people have subscribed. And In they depth. take 30%. Yeah. In depth. Right. So I think there's a discussion to be had about the fundamental essence of the business model for live streaming and why a lot of live streaming services are struggling. But I want to go into what you're doing and then we talk about our business model later, which is you started this with that idea that there could be more than just the general music uh, available to everyone. We can go deeper and can deep dive into uh, niches. So talk me through how you started this because your background is not tech. So how did you, you have the idea and what did you do next? A lot of learning. <laughs> so I have what I call a hairbrain idea. It started off by saying, let's build a niche music streaming service. A bunch of people told me I was mad. And a whole bunch of others said, no, that's a great idea. It's definitely going to move into that space. And I have some fantastic advisors, you know, the ex-CEO of Grace Note and the ex-Global Insights Director for Universal and people who really know their stuff who are way smarter than I am. And I think that's the key about building a good startup is you should always employ people who are smarter than you and have advisors that are smarter than you. But I then put the idea together and 
the concept always was actually look back at the very first deck we put together. The concept always was that we wanted to build our own streams. We wanted to build a platform that could support a number of streams. So think of it like a cable TV network. It's one infrastructure, but off the back of that, you could spin up a number of streams. Each stream is branded and curated according to a specific audience and, you know, paid for accordingly. And so we wanted to run our own streams and we wanted to also become a white label partner for people who needed us to build streams on their behalf. Right. So from the beginning, you, you had the platform, overarching platform idea. Yeah. And then I set about finding a CTO and I was really lucky. I knew a couple of people who made some phenomenal intros and Johan Jakobs joined me and we are two sides of the same coin, except he can do everything I can't and vice versa, I guess. And he is one of the most amazing developers I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And then we, we brought in a head of content and we brought in a marketing manager and I put out an RFP to some of the biggest platform providers in the world. Um, RFP means? A request for proposal to companies that specifically ingest content, distribute it to you, and then also do the reporting back to the label. So it's a big back end function, if you like. And all of them responded. I was blown away by that. And all of them were interested in the idea of building niches and all of them were interested in the idea of doing business in Africa. And so we picked one. We did it, went through a long due diligence process, about three months. We picked one that was the right fit. And I went out to my initial user kind of network, I guess. And next thing I knew, we'd raised 250,000 US in five days. It just blew up. And that was purely on just concept. We'd had the team, we had... You've not written any code, not sold not anything to line. anyone. You just, this is the idea. So was that a big validation for you that I'm onto something here? I think it was a validation for a belief that the team would be willing and able to execute. We were very clear, we need three to six months to show to you that we can do this. And within six months, we had a live platform, um, back-end platform that we completely built from scratch. And by December of that year, we started in March. And by December, we'd launched our first Android client. Wow. So within like... 10 months. <laughs> so within like 10 months, you were able to... We'd finished licensing. We'd done another bridge round. We'd put the entire back end together, the platform. We had our first client out. We'd done licensing agreements with some of the majors. We did a deal with WeChat to get it out into the market as a, as a proof of concept. And I think then where the stumbling block came is that we needed to raise a lot of money to start getting out there and do the marketing, the user acquisition. And that's one of the, the tricky things of the South African market is that VCs here tell you they're looking for early stage, but what they're looking for is de-risked. So when you're at that point where you have product in market and you're still trying to get users in, they're not really prepared to fund that initial user growth. They want to come in when the users are overflowing. And when, when the business model is really solidified and clear. Exactly. And early stage, is, the business model is not clear yet. Exactly. I want to pick something here. You were able to draw back into your agency days to kick off some of this partnership and the account that you have initially. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying that because most startups, Every business is a reflection of a lot about the founder. So you were able to build a business development-driven business yep. for the first few years, and because that's why you had success. Is that some of the rationale behind you saying, okay, B2C, something we can look at later, but we really want to just become B2B business, I mean, music streaming business, but let's focus on B2B. I guess I really cut my teeth in that we missed a beat because when I left Boza, I took time off. I wanted to understand what were the business models that companies were going to bring to this continent and how they're going to do it differently to match up with what our needs are. And I ended up starting a company called HQ Africa that was another services business. We worked with Mozilla Firefox. We worked with Naspash Group again, helping them to expand and launch into Kenya, Nigeria, Sub-Saharan Africa. And what I realized there is that regardless of who you are or where you come from, you're going to need money to educate a market. Yes. And unless you have really deep pockets, that's hard money to come by. And so working with them and seeing the might of what they can achieve when they put their budgets behind it is pretty impressive. Who are they then? Corporates or just? Corporates and established brands. And so with that, we did big telco deals for price check, for example, um, with MT in Nigeria and with Safaricom and a bunch of others. And 
I recognized more and more kind of where content was playing a role, where data was playing a role. And for me, it was taking that learning curve of understanding what big corporates want and what brands require, but also what users want at the end of the day. And I guess marrying it in a space that niche stream could hopefully eventually fulfill. Right. And so it definitely, if you follow the, the pebbles down the garden path, it definitely leads to where we are now. And as I mentioned before, Johan, for example, his strength is the development side of it. I can't write the liner code to save my life, although I now do presentations for Amazon Web Services, which is super funny, <laughs> um, in this blonde chick in jeans and a T-shirt pretending she knows about Elasticsearch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but we have a team that were really complementary and strong at what they're doing, and I see it as an opportunity to take what we have. You know, if you're offering to a telco to build a streaming service at a monthly licensing fee of $3,000 a month – and then you use pay-as-you-go services, so you only pay for what your users use at the end of the day. That's something that speaks directly to their business model and their strengths. Yes. We're good at the tech side. They're exceptionally good at distribution yes. and understanding their users and the marketing and so forth. So it's more pragmatic move for you rather than just another business model. So you want to leverage on what you're good at and you want to use as a fulcrum to move to move things bigger and better than that you would have done it on your own. Also, that validation came, we do host on AWS. Right. And that validation came when they looked at the platform and went, you know, this is pretty amazing. And I was like, I knew it was amazing. I didn't know it was that good. <laughs> so what, what was the deal with AWS? We ended up being approached and asked if we would join an accelerator in Washington, D.C. In, earlier this year. It was a peace tech accelerator. And I initially didn't quite put two and two together. And they said, you know, what's important is that you can – uh, music brings people together. Yes. It unifies cultures and it, it really transcends cultural and language and physical barriers. And we would love you to form part of this Peace Tech Accelerator that's based in the United States Institute for Peace in Washington, D.C. And that was a big turning point for me because it helped me open up my mind. We'd been so focused on Licky that we hadn't really looked at what the possibilities of the platform was because we were just grinding through day-to-day marketing, distribution, licensing deals, and so forth. And one of the things that I thought about was, imagine you are a refugee, you're displaced, you find yourself in a new country where the language doesn't make sense and the culture doesn't make sense, and you certainly can't find any entertainment. What happens if we can distribute an app that includes educational content, music, storytelling, podcasts on a variety of topics and it's all in your language it's the ux and interface is entirely localized it might even be left to right for that matter we can aggregate that content work with someone like the un for example who recently released a report on the importance of content for refugees and how actually the second biggest reason they use their phones over and above kind of contacting family and friends is to is to reach entertainment content. So you're going beyond just music now. You're going to be a platform that can distribute entertainment content. Audio content. Audio content. Audio All content. Form of content. So the business, the business has moved since the last time we met. But yeah, I mean, it has been two years since we yeah. spoke, right? But yeah, this is audio content. So if you find yourself in a position where you want to distribute content... The video platforms exist. YouTube will always be the winner when it comes to video content. But I think that there's a niche here to say to someone, at a fairly cheap rate, you can actually launch your own streaming service and put any type of audio content on there that you wish. And that's a way for us to then help people identify back to culture. So it speaks to our initial need to do niches, but it also speaks to this need of, you know, if you're not an an expert in technology in the same way that WordPress made it almost democratized it for anyone to build a, a website, we can do the same thing. So for me, the niche element remains. That idea that we can do specialized services remains. The fact is that at the Peace Tech Accelerator, we had in- incredible access to some phenomenal mentors. And all of them, Amazon included, looked at this platform and went, that's pretty amazing. Like, why don't we take that and scale it? And so actually the fund, uh, the round we're closing now is a fund that's backed by AWS. It's and, a fund backed by AWS. Yeah. Can you discuss how much you raised? So totally? When this round is closed, it will be 1.5 million US. So you don't raise 1.5 million US. And the goal now is to go more B2B, leverage on your understanding of the market, mm-hmm. your own capability. And I guess it means that people don't have to be drawing that comparison between you and Netflix. So you don't have to be answering the question, say, okay, Netflix is going to come to South Africa, it's going to kill you because that's not where you, that's not where you are. Um, but I also want to understand the business model behind that. Is it I, I want to distribute a lot of content and as a business, so I want to have that and then the user. Is that subscription? So it's pretty simple. So we're B2B to C. 
Our clients pay a monthly licensing fee, probably around $3,000 a month. For that, you get a full stack streaming service. It might be the entry level, but it's a full stack streaming service with Android clients, iOS client, web client, all the reporting, ingestion, everything on the back end. subscription as well. So they will then do subscription. So okay. I mean, they can take this Exactly. So we'll offer them all the revenue models. They can use an ad-funded model if they wish. They can use a credit card subscription model. So apart from brand, who wants to start a live stream music service? Who? Uh, who, who wants to do that? <laughs> Maybe churches, but then apart from brands, big brands. Why so do you if you look, guys like uh, Starbucks already have channels on Spotify. Um, KFC is already doing download. American Eagle is starting their own streaming service, believe it or not. So internationally, there are quite a number of brands moving into that space. Um, Red Bull, for example, might want to build a streaming service one day because they sit with so much content for their users in the same way that they launched Red Bull Mobile with a pure content player. Right. And then maybe airlines as well might want to do that. Do, do you work with airlines? Airlines... Gosh, we've been looking at telco operators, so I'm sure you're familiar with how popular the MTN music stream is. There are a number of telcos out there that are looking at both specialized services as well as broader space services. Yeah, it's anyone who already has a large user base is looking for a way to tie them back in. So imagine using a streaming service. You can say to someone, you can say to brands, why don't you sponsor playlists? And then every time someone listens to that playlist, they get a mobile voucher that next time they walk into a store, they get a discount. And you have a full online to offline model that the brand uses as an extended, uh, basically an extended channel partnership, if you like. Yes. That's interesting. So this is more reliable. No, there are two things here. This B2B is you can easily make money, but how scalable in terms of how big you get? I guess you can say from your use case, you can ask many people as possible. But I'm wondering how many people want to be paying $3,000 a month. So movie.com started off by doing just uh, video. They've now moved into the um, into the audio streaming space. They're charging $3,900 a month with another $490 per app. There are a bunch of others, Seven Digital, for example, are also starting. They've been traditionally been building paper download stores for guys like Coca-Cola and um, other big brands, but now they're moving into that streaming space. Right. So I think more and more for us, what this means is we're no longer raising money for massive user acquisition costs. It's a leaner, meaner model. Yes. We simply work on anything that the client uses, they pay for upfront initially with a $3,000 fee. But then in the same way that Amazon Web Services charges you for the number of API calls you had at the end of each month, you can can actually manage your own expenditure. So that simplifies your business model. But also it means that you have to make some top decisions about some people that you recruited to join your team who are maybe specialists in B2C marketing. You have to let them go or change them to become B2C. So B2B. we're very lucky. There's only one person in our team who is specifically the head of marketing for Licky that actually is a phenomenal content creator, ad person, etc., and has already is working with us in a consulting position moving forward, but has moved on and actually created his own company, which is pretty cool. And we're lucky because the team, you know, our head of product, for example, is built Umpire, which was the German music streaming service that Deezer acquired. But Rolf has always worked with us for Sweat Equity, and he consults also to UEFA and a number of really big brands in Europe. So we bring in expertise as we need it. Moving forward, our dev team will certainly grow, because now we're going to have to be able to support clients and multiple clients on the back end side to make sure that everything runs smoothly, the reporting's done, their encryption's done, you know, their payment systems are working, and so forth. But what is still the big vision? Is, it, is the big vision now... We want to make it easy for people to be their own live streaming platform. Or we want to make it easy for people to listen to niche music that they would have listened to on the other big platforms like Spotify. I think my heart will always lie in that idea that culturally relevant content is important and that there are not enough of those out there. I think the success of the ones that are out there is testament to why it's important to have them. But ultimately from us, it's to be the best platform as a service provider in the on-demand streaming space and ultimately be able to offer it at a price that's affordable. Anyone can now build a stream. You don't have to have a million dollars or 18 months to do it. If you're a Sunday school teacher and you just want to put a Sunday school stream together, you can do that. Uh, If you are into Persian music and you want to build a streaming service for the expat community, you can do that. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Our projections are good. 
our team is strong, our investors are top-notch, and we suddenly have an opportunity to actually bring in a much stronger team on our side. You know, you have to have the money to be able to hire the key people. Yeah, that's why you need to raise good money. And we just keep learning. You know, this has been a hockey stick learning curve for us. <laughs> Let's talk about the future, the way you see it. We're here just overlooking the arbor of Cape Town. How do you, what's, what's in the horizon for uh, the music streaming business in Africa? Is there going to be more niche? Are there going to be more music? Uh, will people be consuming music now, not via the radio, but their own music, the one they want, uh, as more mobile technology penetrates everywhere in Africa? Um, are, are there other things that I can't even think of that you think will happen in the next 5 to 10 or 15 years? Gosh, I have a 13-year-old brother, and every time he opens his mouth, I think I'm old. <laughs> I just don't understand what he's talking about anymore. <laughs> and I used to think I was relevant, right? I don't think radio will ever die. Not in the near future. I shouldn't say never. Anything's possible. I think radio remains the one way that people discover and enjoy music, free of charge, that's ad-funded, and it works, right? They might be struggling because they're not necessarily getting as much ad dollars as they used to. I think that ultimately people are going to become a lot more fussy about how they consume their content, when they consume it, and how they can engage with that content. You know, I love my playlists. I listen to Spotify, and they must think I'm the most confused person on earth because it's literally everything from Queen right through to Red Hot Chili Peppers from time to time, and everything in between. Same here, same here. Yeah. I, I, I think I listen to lots of 1960s or, 1960s or 70s music, yeah, but I'm a very confused person. It's not that I'm listening to. You know, they discover weekly algorithm doesn't work so well on me because I don't fit into the norm, but... You know, there are many people like us out there. And that ability to put my own playlists together that are weird and wonderful, that I can access and it can be my guilty pleasure what I listen to, and I can listen to it whenever I want to, I think is really crucial. I would like to see there being more active brand engagement that's more honest, if you like. I'm, you know, I don't own a TV because I hate ads. There's nothing worse than having my experience interrupted by an ad that I do not need a vacuum cleaner. I'm fine. But if you can start serving me ads that are relevant to me, that fit right into my lifestyle, that understand me because of my content behavior, my content listening behavior, that for me starts becoming really interesting. So we're actually working with some pretty cool technology around looking at how do we predict what music you're going to like and how do we predict what music, what type and genre and mood that music is before you've even given us any metadata about it. You know, I want to be able to say, is that Yoruba music and is it gospel and what mood is that music so that you can start curating playlists around that. There's some fascinating stuff happening in that machine learning AI space and then using that to start predicting and offering recommendations for users and then using that same technology on the back end to start serving me content and ads potentially that make more sense. Isn't Spotify doing that already? They are. Everyone's trying to do it. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> AI is and machine learning is going to online a lot of product developments and it's just going to be the norm as we go on. Now, it's also scary, right? It is. How did you know I wanted to listen to that track right now? <laughs> yeah, because I inadvertently <laughs> gave you my data. Um, before we move to the fire session, which I do at the end of the podcast, I want to talk a bit about the South African tech ecosystem. Mm-hmm. A lot of, I mean, from the, the view, a lot of South Southern African tech ecosystem sees South Africa as almost a different market, mm-hmm. right? just different. And you've been here, you build your businesses here, you are part and parcel of the ecosystem in Cape Town and in in Joburg as well. So tell me about it. from Just from an education perspective, I want to know what has happened in the last five years. Uh, has there been exits? Has there been, what has changed and what is, what is happening in this ecosystem? It's definitely an ecosystem that's growing in leaps and bounds. We've recently had a very big exit. A South African company called Get Smarter that sold for over $100 million. Get Smarter? What Get is Smarter. this about? Um, so they offer online courses with tutoring from some of the biggest and most reputable institutions and learning institutions in the world. Online courses to individuals or to businesses? Individuals. So if you want to do a business administration course, which actually our office administrator did. Is that, is that like Linda? I guess so. But in their case, they have direct tutoring and they, um, you know, you get one-on-one tutor that works with you and helps you with every course module. And it's very hands-on. I've seen Tembisa in our office go through it and learn an enormous amount. Um, and it's cheap. You know, she suddenly has a diploma from UCT, University of Cape Town. Oh, yeah. So they connect to universities as well. So they deliver yeah. it online. 
But then you have distributed universities giving their certificates through that platform. So rather than you say, I want to learn stuff, I have to register to the University of Cape Town, but you can say, okay, actually, instead of going to university, I want to learn how to become a business admin person. So, and then this platform will give me the best course, and then the certificate is just... Exactly that. Wow. Yeah, so we have, you know, and there's the health cute guys out of Stellenbosch. It's fantastic and fascinating and very secretive health monitor, you know, uh, lifestyle monitoring. So watches that use light emissions to check your blood sugar levels and your blood pressure and everything else. There's, I think that the interesting thing about the South African ecosystem is that it's a fairly well-connected ecosystem. It's easy to get to know everybody. I don't find it nearly as fascinating as Lagos, for example, or Nairobi. Yeah. It's, it's almost as if there's a lot of me too's here. And there's also a lot of companies doing phenomenal stuff. You can argue the same way, same thing in Nigeria. I just, I find that there's a lot more of a hustle in other territories. Yes, yes. And there's a more of a hustle because there's less of, oh, well, I should be funded because. Actually, yes. no, you should be funded because you're good and it's a good concept. And I think the one thing that we still have is a very small investment community. Okay. Um, sadly, in our case, for example, our investors are, our angels are local, but our investors are offshore. And we're being asked to incorporate in the UK. We're actually moving the company out of South Africa. Because most of your investors are? We'll keep ops here, and it's definitely a lot cheaper. But I think that South Africa has become a bit of a bubble, whereas my experience is that the rest of other territories that are doing well seem to be doing a lot more cross-pollination and a lot more interesting things. But that's just because... You know, South Africans still speak about going. We're going into Africa. No, you're not. You're on the continent. Is that what? Is that what is? <laughs> because it's very easy for you to be living here and you think that you are not in Africa. It's a bubble. Look at it. Yeah, <laughs> it's it beautiful is here. It's, it, it looks like any other European country. It just looks like Germany. To, to some extent, just think this is Germany, and then <laughs> and then you can think about African other African countries, Africa. So tell me about that company. Also, for hundred million. Is it local exit or international? International company? exit. Came to buy them, and most of the users are South African. Uh, to be honest, I don't know. I'm happy to, to find a contact for you and introduce you because I think it'd be worth chatting to them. That would be great. I would love to um, have them on the show. We've had a couple of really big exits, and I think that what we need is more of those. I think what is important is South, Af- South African startups, and I think startups across this continent start thinking about how can our solutions speak to a global audience. Yes, yes. We are solving local problems for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that what we forget is that sometimes those solutions are applicable in other territories. Yes, because um, money has no boundary, right? And so people, capital want to move everywhere. So capital is looking for opportunities, whether in Africa or not. So if you can be the business that is solving not just local problem, but solving a global problem, no matter wherever you are, somebody's going to find value in that and want to buy you or do business with you. That's why I'm so excited. You know, we started with a premise that things can and should be done differently. Music streaming should be profitable both for the streaming service as well as for the artists. It's important. If you can't fund the artist, they can't create more content. It's as simple as that. But I think what we ended up is taking that philosophy that there are these niches out there. And niche doesn't imply small, right? There are big big communities out there, but that we can build a platform using local resources that is globally applicable. We can now work with American entities and we can work with local, you know, African telcos, for example. And I'm excited about that. I'm not 100% happy that we have to incorporate in the UK, but I understand that from the perspective of the investor, it's a more stable territory, the money's safer, you know, we don't have a situation where the RAND falls through the floor and they lose all the value that they've put in. But at the end of the day, we can also still run a business from here and do local yes. employment and do it cheaper than anywhere else in the world, yes. as far as I'm concerned. You know, Xero, the, the accounting software, mm. Xero, they started from New Zealand. They yeah. actually went public in New Zealand as a business and now they're global. I mean, of course, so the team is all over the world, but it became a global business. They just moved from New Zealand and now they dominated the UK. Actually, I think they're winning or they're maybe head to head with, with um, Sage. Mm. And now they're in the state as well. So there's nothing stopping an African company like yours doing exceedingly well in the uh, UK and still have that local connection. I also sincerely hope that the guys like Get Smarter and some of the other big exits truly show more startups or people thinking of starting their own businesses what's possible. Yes. The truth is, 
95 or 99 or however many percent majority by a vast number will fail. This is not, we spoke about this before we switched on the tape recorder, but this is not for sissies. You know, your friends and family are going to think you're mad. Mm -hmm. You're going to wonder most days why you're doing this. Yes. You're going to have to learn to deal with rejection a lot. It's tough. But I think that if that's your calling and you're willing to take on those highs and those lows and you're willing to admit to that it's hard and tell more startups out there that it's hard but worth it, that hopefully more of them will create their own futures and stop relying on systems that are crumbling. You know, unemployment in this country is way over 50%. Wow. How do you help people understand that like it's worth taking the risk? It's worth doing, even if you fail. You can fall flat on your face, but at least you can try again. And we have such a fear around failure. You know, I love this idea that in the US, unless you fail two or three times, they don't really want to invest in you. I think that should become the thing here across this continent. Well, culturally, we, we, don't, we don't want to. We're not good at it. Culturally, it's going to take a long time to get there. Even in the UK, right? So uh, American culture is totally different from the UK. We are, uh, in the UK, entrepreneurs and investors are averse to failures. Yeah. Yeah. So let's finish out this podcast by doing a series of fire questions. I'm going to ask you uh, some questions and then just give me straight answers to that, right? That's scary. Okay. Good? Okay. Mm-hmm. What is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Funding. Funding? So accessing capital for your business? Well, you're about to close around. That's still been a long, hard <laughs> road. <laughs> yeah. What is your number one growth metric? What do you look at to indicate whether your business is growing or not? Moving forward, revenue. Revenue. Up well, till now, it's been users. It's been users. Okay, so moving forward, is, is it the number of accounts that you sign? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so before it's users because we are doing B2C, but now it's the number of accounts that you sign. That yes, sir. Generate that revenue. Which book are you reading at the moment? The President's Keepers and Sapiens. I tend to read two or three at the same time. I'm reading Sapiens as well. <laughs> it's an interesting book. It is. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating book. And Really tasking, yeah. Um, who, who is the author of uh, President's uh, The President's Keepers is uh, Jacques Poe. Uh, it's breaking records here and abroad. It's basically about the cronies around President Zuma. That's yeah. I saw another book when I was coming, uh, Enemy of the State. Is that a similar book as well about a president? Yeah, there are a few coming out now. This one is particularly shocking and particularly accurate, and I think incredibly brave of the author to write. Okay, I'm going to see, um, look for it and see if we can buy it before leaving. It's, it's almost comical. Right. I mean, to give you an idea, the South African rail system, uh, in the space of two years of 216 tenders that they released, only 13 were found to be above board. Wow. So 203 tenders were corrupt wow and just goes to show you the depth of what we deal with yeah, here and, and think, in other territories yes, but just keeping your need, eyes open i think we need this kind of books and eye-opening books in other african countries as well also it's important to understand the environment you're operating in right because you work in an environment where the currency fluctuates as much as it does it's really hard when you're doing global business yes. it's really hard to bring funding in it's really hard yes. to recruit people from other territories and yes. so forth so which business is getting you excited at the moment apart from your own business? Interestingly enough, someone I'm mentoring, it's called Locum Base, and it is a platform to allow medical locums, optometry locums, nurses, um, pharmacists, etc., to connect directly to practices and allow each to see the other um, and remove kind of the high fees from rec- that recruiters charge and allow locums to make their calendars available and allow practices to find locums that are reliable and rated. Wow. And uh, they're about to launch. They've got their MVP out. There's a huge market. I never knew there were so many locums out there, about 300,000 plus just in South Africa. And uh, there are some international companies doing it, but no one's really doing it in this space yet. So That's exactly democratizing access to locums. Mm. Good. Um, Catherine, I know this is going to be an interesting conversation. You're the first person I meet apart from my host in this Airbnb in South <laughs> Africa. And it's been great having a chat with you. And I look forward to more chat over the next few days and, and meeting more people as well in, in Cape Town. It's Thanks. such a pleasure having you here. And I really appreciate the opportunity. It's always odd speaking about yourself, but I hope there's something that can be learned from it. And I hope you have an incredible stay. I will. I will. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you.
This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. Do you have an offer, a product, service, or message that will be ideal for entrepreneurs, investors, or corporate executives across Africa? Building the Future podcast can help you. This podcast has been sponsored by partners who want to reach super-targeted audience of investors, entrepreneurs, and people who are in the process of starting their own business. If you or your company is interested in reaching those audiences, through this podcast. We would like to chat with you. We have sponsorship slots from three episodes up to one year. Send me an email via hello at the starter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we can take this further. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.